it's a really interesting family, a lot of history. And so um, I am kind of the official like family historian. That was polo player Dale Johnson. Welcome to Storied San Francisco. I'm your host, Jeff Hunt. Before I tell you about this episode, just a quick announcement. This Thursday, our own Michelle Kilfeather will be one of eight photographers, including season one storyteller Ryan Ackerberg, taking part in an actual live show. It's called 214, and photos will be projected on a large wall outside of 63 Blexum Street Gallery. Local brewery will be open for your food and drink needs, and it'll be a really great time. The show runs from 7.30 to 10.30 at 63 Bluxom Street in South of Market. Back to the podcast. In this episode, Dale gives us a detailed account of his family going back two and three generations, from the New York State-Canada border and a black town in Texas, to the West Coast and eventually Oakland. His parents met at a park in the East Bay, and Dale was born a few years later. He talks about growing up in East Oakland and some of the changes he saw, even as a kid, that had an impact on his life. Be sure to check back Thursday for part two to hear the rest of Dale's life story, including how he got started playing polo. He'll give us some insight on the rather obscure sport that he's come to love. Here's Dale. Um, not only being a polo player, I'm a black polo player. And um, polo players are particularly rare, but I think it's even more rare to find a black polo player. And uh, I don't really like to go out there and, and kind of use that, but it, it, it does tie into my history a bit. Um, and so I'm a descendant of black cowboys. Okay. Uh, my, my, my grandfather raised quarter horses in Texas. In Madisonville, Texas. I was going to ask where. I'm from Texas okay. originally. Madisonville. What part of the state is that? So it's about 90 miles north of uh, Houston. Okay. So basically on the way to Dallas, Got if it. you will. And he was born on a settlement, a black settlement. Um, and there are a number of these black settlements uh, throughout the country that are not as well known as, like, let's just say Tulsa. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge one that was thrown out there this year that a lot of people didn't know about. Right. I knew about that because my grandmother is from Oklahoma originally. Okay. So, And uh, both of my grandparents were born in the 19-teens. So mm -hmm. a lot of those events, like in Tulsa or Rosewood, Florida, were happening when my grandparents were very much alive, very much well. Wow. So these were stories that were actually told to me as a child before they were movies, before they had actually fallen to the mainstream with Black Lives Matter, which, I mean, I'm very happy that they gained a lot of traction mm -hmm. um juneteenth obviously was huge in my family them being from texas That's a texas story right yeah. so my family founded this settlement called high prairie which now sits in what is i guess the current city of madisonville um hmm. shortly after juneteenth okay and there were two families the johnson family which i'm a descendant of dale johnson obviously mm -hmm. and the mcadams family okay and there weren't was a Madisonville the the European slash white name? Yeah, and High Prairie was, was the black. High Prairie name? was basically the black settlement that got it. Um, so there, it's funny because there were certain black people that a lot of people didn't know that were actually granted land settlements. Right. 
um, shortly after uh, Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. My family had the, the advantage of being one of those. Right on. um, obviously, I think during, it was the Johnson administration after Lincoln was assassinated mm-hmm. um, and in sort of reconstruction, mm-hmm. where there was a bureau that actually was supposed to divvy out land to blacks, uh, freed blacks, and actually make sure that they were tenant farm, like these these farmers, if you will, not tenant farmers, because that was sharecropping. sharecroppers. Right, right, <laughs> but right. they were supposed to be independent farmers. Mm-hmm. And some of those people actually did get land grants. I was going to say, from my um, very shallow understanding of U.S. history, for a while there, those first, I don't know how many years, during Reconstruction, things were better. Absolutely. Like, black congressmen and Senators. maybe a woman and a governor and, like, all this stuff was happening. Yes. And then... Right. So there ooh. were these fears of what you would consider black rule. Right. And I think that a lot of times, you know, people thought that you know, the black people who were originally enslaved would be vindictive. Right. But in a lot of these stories that you hear, that wasn't it. Um, all they wanted was fair and equal participation in right. the process, fair and equal participation in the economic system. It's like, imagine and, that. Right. <laughs> and what you can see in a lot of these cases is that that's what was actually taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there was a lot of, I think, backlash mm-hmm. to that. And so you, you had the establishment of the black codes, and then you had eventually what we would consider Jim Crow. And Jim Crow was the system that both my grandparents, uh, definitely on my my paternal side, or fraternal, yeah, paternal side, mm-hmm. uh, experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were born into it, lived a large amount of their life into it until they right. moved to California. Okay. That also, one thing I'm learning that that's when the KKK yeah. came, came to be. Certainly, they were at their height um, at that point in the yeah. 1920s. Definitely, um, they 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 had been established, but they'd really reached sort of a fever. Uh, pitch around that time, the 1920s, yeah. 1930s, yeah. and it was. Uh, my grandparents told me it, w- it was a terrifying time. Yeah. Um, uh, my grandmother went to, and uh, my grandparents went to segregated schools. They mm-hmm. met at a segregated college mm-hmm. in Back Austin. Back in Texas. Yes. In oh, Austin. in Austin. What was it called? Houston Tillerson. Okay. And it's still there. Okay. So they met in Austin. They took me there. Is to, it an HBCU? It is. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. So they they took me there to show me where they'd met. The staircase, apparently. Okay. My grandfather was a bit of a ladies' man, so wow. my my grandmother was not the only woman I apparently was say. that he uh, uh, was courting at the time. But <laughs> she ended up being the main one. She showed me the staircase where she pushed down another woman. Okay. Um, in a actual fight over my grandfather. <laughs> Go so, grandma! Indeed. So she was the winner, and okay. here I am. It's like a weird uh, uh, darkmanism in your family. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, but thank you, Grandma. Uh, yeah. So, um, what you what you just said about them, kind of doing their best to escape all that and coming to California. Like, I'm I'm thinking about what I hear a lot of younger folks or or people our age talking about in the U.S. right now. It's like, can we go other parts of the world? Can we go to can? You know what I mean? Like, uh, absolutely. But this was yes, super real for them. It was. So there's there was the great migration that a lot of people don't really know about and that was the movement of over six million black people out of the Jim Crow South into the cities which ended up forming a lot of the politics of the cities of today and a lot of the rhetoric that you hear that is so inflammatory and really kind of speaks to me as a descendant of these people and actually I take oftentimes great offense to that because I think that that story is often not understood and not told and uh, not only did they experience their experience when they left the Jim Crow South, 
wasn't the greatest, but the, their experience in the cities, all, although better, was not often the best either. And my grandparents right. will talk about, you know, things with, you know, redlining and policing mm -hmm. and all of those experiences that, that resonate today. I mean, I grew up in historically redlined neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. In fact, the neighborhood I live in, because the house we inherited from my late father-in-law was a redlined neighborhood mm -hmm. that he was only allowed to buy in. Right. Right. So it's, it does resonate to today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where in California did um, so that's one set of grandparents. Right. Where did where did they come in California? Oh, so my grandparents and so my dad's parents, um, who I relate back to sort of my equestrian roots, uh, they come they came to Oakland. Okay. So Oakland and San Francisco in so, the twenties. Uh, so my mom's family's a little earlier. They came with Pullman porters. So they were coming. They were kind of moving around in this area in the twenties and thirties. Got it. But my 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 father's parents, the Johnsons, they came in the 40s. Okay. Um, they had actually, some of them had actually started coming in the late 30s to work at Mare Island mm -hmm. to work on paint submarines. Right. So the house that I actually grew up in belonged to an uncle who painted submarines at Mare Island. Oh wow! And uh, he'd he'd uh, he'd come. Uh, Another horse connection also. I, Mare Island, right? Yeah, it is. There yes, there you go, Mare Island. Yes, another horse connection. I can't seem to escape it. <laughs> And so my my grandfather was conscripted uh, out of college, I believe, um, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So a lot of black people um, were moved. Uh, they moved because out of military necessity, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of them were thankful for, too. Right. right. So they didn't have to pay for the, the move. And so my grandfather served in Guinea and in the Philippines in, in segregated units. Okay. And he was a radio operator. Um, and Which get, branch would that be? The Army. The Army. Okay, he was in the it. Army. Got mm -hmm. it. So, and he shipped out of Oakland Army Base and was stationed literally in Guinea for in the Philippines for two years. He never came back. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But he had already started a family, it sounds he like. St he, he married my grandmother. Yeah. They didn't start a family, so they tried to, they, they definitely tried to have children. Um, they lost their first child. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 1957, they had my dad. Okay. Mm-hmm. So your dad, do you want to say your dad's name? You don't have to. Oh yeah, my dad's name's Dale. Okay. <laughs> yeah, are just you, like me. I'm junior. junior. I'm a okay. junior. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so your dad's born in what year you said? 1957. Okay. Um, in Oakland. He was born in Berkeley. Born in Berkeley. So yeah, so there was a hospital there, Herrick Hospital. Okay. Um, which I think now it's out to bait as we, okay. yeah. So, but it was Herrick Hospital. Uh, but my grandparents lived in Oakland, but he was... Right. He was born in Herrick in Berkeley. Right. Do you want to speak to any of, of his experiences growing up there? Or, or I mean, eventually I'd like to hear, now yeah. that you said that story, like eventually him and your mom. Right. So, yeah, definitely. My dad, well, he grew up in the Bay Area at a really interesting time. Mm -hmm. So 57. Um, and, you know, he was really kind of coming of age when a lot of the movements that were here in the Bay Area were really taking place. Mm -hmm. The Black Power movement, uh, the feminist movement. Um, I mean, there hippies. yeah, hippies. I mean, the summer of love. Mm -hmm. All of those things were kind of taking place right here. Right. And although he was a, a child, I mean, at certain points he was probably like ten or eleven. Uh, he he definitely said he was impacted by a lot of what he'd seen. Um, he was in high school by the time the Black Power movements had really started to kind of take root. Mm -hmm. uh, he was really enthusiastic about these things. Okay. But my grandparents, believe it or not, were not. Maybe a little more conservative? They were a little bit more conservative. Right. I mean, obviously the issues that matter to them, uh, I mean, they were active in ACORN, so they mm -hmm. definitely worked to get out, you know, black voters. Right. Um, they were very much involved in the black sort of economic community. My grandfather had owned a few laundry mats and had a few contracts with the Navy. Okay. Uh, and he'd also founded, it, it was actually, it's really cool. Maybe I'll show you the article, but it was the first black 
operated car, like automatic car wash okay. in the East Bay. All right. And Love so it. he was like standing there. There's a great uh, photograph with him, like standing with like a local senator and a congressman and yes. like, shaking their hands. What was it called? Do you know? Uh, best auto wash yes. wasn't a lot of competition in the yeah. in the fifties, but it didn't have any. It didn't have like a pun name. Or no, no, was, no. That's not my grandfather's style. He's Got pretty it. pretty straight, straight up and down yeah. Texan. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Um, but they were definitely involved. I think uh, in terms of this idea of black people and how they best thought to sort of advance their advance their causes in mm -hmm. a different way. They they definitely were not huge in the Black Panther movement. And I just, to your point, they were just definitely a little bit more conservative than right. my dad. And and that's understandable. Yeah. But, yeah, so. Did your dad maybe a little later, maybe in his teen years, did your dad start to actually participate in, in stuff? I mean, like you said, it was a volatile time out here. You know, my mom was actually the more of the person who went to demonstrations that she told me. Let's so, bring her in. Yeah, absolutely. So, Kimberly. Uh, so, my mother... Kim is an amazing person, would probably be the one person to give you the shirt off her back, I know, and definitely strive to be like her every day. Awesome. Um, she is the type of person who sees the goodness in every person, mm -hmm. even when everyone tells her not to. Right, even when there isn't any. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and my mother is, I don't know, she's just really just a free spirit, you know. Um, Where is she from originally? She was born in a Herrick Hospital, too, like my okay. dad. <laughs> so her parents originally come from um, Elmira, New York, okay. in Tioga County. And uh, they, yeah, and my grandfather was born in Niagara Falls, I think, on wow. the Canadian side. Oh, shit. Yeah, so his family actually, awesome. yeah, so my, yeah, and it kind of goes back to sort of how they all ended up coming back to Oakland. So mm -hmm. my grandfather... My great-grandfather was married twice. Mm -hmm. First to uh, Grandma Inez, who birthed my grandfather, mm -hmm. my James, mm -hmm. who was born in Niagara Falls, and then ended up moving down into Tioga County, where he individually met my grandmother. Mm -hmm. His father, however, went back to Canada okay. and uh, was the pastor at St. Catherine's Church, um, which was actually the final stop on the under Underground Railroad. And oh, wow. he was a, what you call a, I think it was a British Methodist Episcopalian, but for black people, um, in, in that area. So because they the churches were segregated. So right. he was a huge um, religious leader. And by that time, he'd already remarried and had a couple more of my great aunts and uncles. They actually ended up moving from um, the Toronto area because he was born in Guelph. Mm -hmm. uh, they ended up moving out to Vancouver. Oh, wow. And so between and then he ended up becoming a religious leader in Vancouver. Um, I have an article about this, about the church he was in, but funny, Jimi Hendrix's mother, there's a, the, the, the article shows Jimi Hendrix's mother walking up the stairs with my great-grandfather greeting her because he was from Vancouver, yes. which a lot of people don't know. I didn't. That's and awesome. so that church was the center of black life in Vancouver. And then, but my grandfather was very active in um, social movements throughout the West Coast. Okay. So a huge one was the Pullman Porters. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of people don't know about the Pullman Porters, when railroads crisscrossed the United States, uh, George Pullman, after slavery, thought, oh, well, I need somebody who kind of knows the caste system to work on these trains. So basically the Pullman porters were kind of servile, but these porters who would serve everyone on, on the railroad car, on these luxurious railroad cars. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big stops was Oakland. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening was 
um, over time, the Pullman porters began to organize because they realized they weren't being paid nearly as close as they were to the white porters. Mm -hmm. Although it was an upstanding job in the black community. Hmm. That's why like great neighborhoods in North Oakland and West Oakland, these, these people were the pillars of the community because they made the most and could make the most traction. Right. But they were making a fraction of what their white counterparts were. Mm -hmm. And so my a lot of the organization for a lot of these social movements, a lot of these union sort of labor movements were formed in the black church for Got black it. people. My great grandfather ended up moving up and down the West Coast at different ports of call, if you will, or the in sure. terminals right. to help organize. Mm -hmm. And so he helped, I think it was um, Philip Randolph, mm -hmm. uh, who actually founded the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and then the Dellums. If you're familiar with like Ron, Ron Dellums, the Dellums family was huge in that too. Got it. So he ended up being a pretty large and influential sort of leader and um it was it ended up being the ame african-american methodist episcopalian mm -hmm. churches in oakland and then of course in, the, in that union movement so what ended up happening eventually was they decided to leave vancouver and came down to oakland got it now why my so the move it was movement inspired in absolutely way. Yeah. absolutely yeah. so they moved it for more of like the social aspect now right. my grandfather who was back in new york with my grandma and pregnant with my mother mm -hmm. and uh place called Elmira, New York, decided that his father was there and his father said, hey, there's lots of opportunities here on the West Coast. Why don't you bring um, your wife and your many children? Because they were Catholic <laughs> and uh, did not, know, my mom, as my mom says, did not know the meaning of no. Yeah. And so they brought, um, I think they had, by that time, had had five children. Wow. They ended up having like eight and they finally ended up coming to, to Oakland. Okay. So, yeah. So that, and so then that means your was your mom born out here or born back there? Oh, they were pregnant. So she was born, she was born here. here. Oh, you said the same hospital. Yeah, she was born in the same hospital as my dad. Okay. So, um, that, okay. This is, <laughs> this is so rad. I'm like, we could do a whole podcast just about your family. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting family, a lot of history. And so, um, I am kind of the official like family historian. Awesome. So I go we through all the, the right guy. Yeah, go through all the records. I can trace my relatives back to West Virginia, wow. um, the Shenandoah Valley on my mom's side, where they were like enslaved, and uh, I can trace their relatives back to about the colonial period. Jeez. Even before, as my mom always says, your family was here before the U.S. was the U.S. Right. You know. So you know, this is home for me. We might seriously have to do another episode. I, I would with you. love to do um, it because eventually we have to get to you. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. So, so uh, just quickly, what was her, what was your mom's um, born name, maiden name? Uh, Moore. M-O-O-R-E. And then her grandfather, her great-grandfather who'd done all this, his name is James Ivan Moore. Okay. And so he was pretty well known. So if you kind of look that name up, it'll James pop Ivan up quite Moore. a bit as a, uh, as a sort of a union leader and church leader throughout Oakland and the Bay Area and the black community just along the West Coast. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I will look that up. Yeah. Um, okay. So how did your parents meet? They met at a park. They met at a park in High Street in Oakland. Nice. Yeah. And... I think that was kind of it. Just uh, randomly? Yeah, yeah, for the most like part. It wasn't like families? No, no, it wasn't like families. Pulling strings? No, anything. not at all, not at all. Okay. Um, so my dad was, uh, he was in sports. So my dad was actually a big sportsman. Um, I probably inherited that from him. Mm -hmm. I'm huge into sports still. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was, he was actually, a I guess he was like a coach. Okay. He's kind of a coach for kids. And my mom was at the park. He liked my mom. <laughs> they ended up having my sister. Uh, my they were really young. My dad was still in college. My mom was nineteen. Oh wow! 
Uh, so they ended up having my sister Asia, okay. AJA, that they named after their f favorite Steely Dan album yes. from 1979. Uh, that's that tells you the nature of my parents just a little bit. Yeah, I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm loving it. Right. Do, you, do you just have the one sibling? I do have just the one sister. Okay. I have a younger stepsister as well, but I mean, if you were to talk about just my family, my parents, and me, there's just me and my sister. And so your sister was born in 79, 79. Okay. Yeah. And you come along seven-ish years later? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they were just kind of doing their thing, um, your parents, and then they had the second kid. And, yes, and it was and me. You. And they're rocking. They're still probably listening to Steely Dan. So they're much like, Steely Dan. You know, oh, people man. were telling them it's over, and they're like, it's not over. Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, well, do you want to walk us through? Obviously, you don't remember your birth, and that's okay. But uh, earlier, I said late '80s, but I, I'm guessing more early '90s. Yeah. So I was born in '85. Yeah. Then, your first memories would be yeah, my very first, late '80s. Yeah, late '80s, yeah. and then uh, coming in uh, in Oakland in the early '90s, late '80s. Do you remember the earthquake? Absolutely. That's a yeah. That's one that'll stick. Yeah. So you, there are those glimpses from childhood that you remember. The yeah. big one was the earthquake. My dad didn't come home because he was stuck in an elevator because my dad ended up working for Chevron and the Chevron headquarters was in in San Francisco. Right. And so he ended up getting stuck in an elevator for a couple hours. Then, then he said he <laughs> no, stopped. No, thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> then, then he stopped over at a few pubs because he said everything was off and That's they didn't want everything going bad. So they exactly were giving out free, what I would do. free beer. So he said, I grabbed a few. And then because BART wasn't running, they were running ferry services, mm -hmm. but everybody's waiting in these huge lines to get back across the bay. Mm -hmm. And he tells me the story that all you could see was the marina district burning as, mm. as the boats are leaving and everybody's just oh kind of looking at that. God. Yeah. So and that's when you're like, I'll just keep drinking on the boat. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <sighs> My only um, frame of reference to any of that, because I wasn't out here for that, but like 9-11, like those few hours or days when you're like, is that it? Yeah. Uh, it's poignant. It's 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 like a, a ping, you know, like a crescendo and mm -hmm. then things go almost back to normal and right. it's like wow right. but that just happened and uh, yeah and then you're kind of addicted to sort of the i don't know the adrenaline in that moment and you keep trying to i don't know it's weird you maybe try to kind of relive it like because it it just seems so unreal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that everything just kind of dies back down mm -hmm. and yeah. adrenaline is absolutely the right word yeah it's like you're you're it's like a, a but, high right that's why i just keep playing polo right <laughs> <laughs> Every day I need the adrenaline. Nice. Um, do you want to talk about growing up in the Bay Area? I guess you you eventually moved to San Francisco, but I want to hear yeah, just about... Yeah, I didn't move to San Francisco until I was an adult. Got it. Yeah, okay. So... okay, so let's hear about your Bay Area, yeah, Oakland. Yeah, Oakland experience. So I grew up, I grew up in uh, deep East Oakland, so I mean, I represent that hard. So uh, as I'd mentioned before, the house I grew up in belonged to a late uncle. Right. In, from Maryland. He ended up dying in 78. Okay. The house ended up sitting vacant. My family, I think he must have bought it either in the late 30s or early 40s. I think 39 was about the year he bought it. And so this house was vacant. Uh, it ended up going to my grandmother. And there's this empty house and there's this young family. It's my parents and my sister. And say so they move in. And so that's how I grew up. So I grew up off uh, 98th Avenue, um, not far from the Coliseum, mm -hmm. uh, 98th and East. So neighborhoods got Brookfield. Mm -hmm. uh, the proper name is Sobrante Park. Okay. But 
don't ever call it Sobrante Park. It's Sobrani Park. Ah. So Sobrani is not Sobrante. Got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I will refer to it as Sobrani Park. Got it's it. It's for authenticity. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and so basically I grew up in those neighborhoods there. And those neighborhoods were really interesting because even still, mm-hmm. um, those neighborhoods are still the, the, the most predominantly black neighborhoods in Oakland. Okay. They still remain the most predominantly black. But they, now, I mean, they were originally these middle-class enclaves, but now they're not. Right. They are actually the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And so when I was coming of age, um, crack and drugs and things like that had hit those those neighborhoods right. hard. Right. And Were it, you aware of that as a kid? Or, or I mean, I guess eventually, but like, yeah, I mean, as you, a little kid. So, you? you know, you kind of understood like gunshots. So my mom would say things like get on the floor um, or she'd see a certain group of guys because there was a park directly behind my house. Don't go to that park um, when those guys are there. Mm-hmm. But then you could go to the park when they weren't there. Got it. And, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, just uh, bars on every window. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that. Yeah, so just bars in every window. Our house was burglared, uh, burgle, burgled a few times, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah, it it was just an interesting time, and and it, it, it sort of a, a co, it was sort of coincided or a coalescence of a, a number of things: the introduction of of drugs into those communities, but also a lot of the the manufacturing and industry that actually were the anchor of those communities started to kind of see their way out. Right. So there was a large, large warehouse. I mean, it was a, it was massive when I was a kid. I recall it, it, they used to build ship engines there for container ships. So like yeah. container ships you see at the Port of Oakland. Right. They actually used to build these huge engines. I would imagine that needed to be a big building. Right. I, yeah. Very Absolutely. Yeah. You're talking about 70,000 horsepower there, bud. Jeez. I used to work on container ships. Another horse, actually. Another horse ride. Uh, yeah. So I actually worked on container ships right out of college. So I know the horsepower oh, wow. needed. So okay um but yeah so they used to build those engines there there's sunshine biscuits granny goose um i think mother's cookies had a factory there and actually durant square was a gmc auto plant as Mm. well so you know the thing about it is you know i got to kind of see a rust belt sort of situation if you will right early on so it's really interesting when you see people talking about these jobs were shipped overseas where in my neighborhood that happened 30, 40 years ago. What are you talking about? You you guys just catching up. Right. (laughs) Right. Right, right. And, you know, these ideas of death, of of despair and and drugs. So I find it really interesting that when these sort of economic perils hit neighborhoods like mine, Mm -hmm. the people were almost demonized for taking drugs and things like that. And then when you hear them seeing more sort of Midwestern communities, Mm -hmm. they become deaths of despair and we have to do everything we can to put all of our resources and stop China and things like that. And you something know, similar with opioids, yeah, too, but pres- that's a different that's a different precisely. Podcast. No, but yeah. no, but the, the effects are the same. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't disagree with the deaths of despair, nor do I say that I don't feel sorry for for any of these people. But it's just interesting. The response mm-hmm. that happened in neighborhoods like mine mm-hmm. and the treatment and how the people were almost demonized. Mm-hmm. So throughout my life, I was told you need to go to school. You need to go to college because this is why you need to get out of here mm-hmm. and oh yeah the reason why you guys are all messed up is because it's your fault mm-hmm. so we're I on kinda, drugs right, you, you're all on dr- yeah yes. so i grew up with that mentality yeah and so it was really do your best at school go to college and in all of these other things so it's it's interesting and I, I i draw those contrasts and those parallels as i grow up and so you now you see that a lot um 
just in the news and in the media and things right. like that, that those kinds of things right. sort of blaming other people for the offshoring of jobs mm -hmm. and and you know you get you know I, I i it was almost like looking into a crystal ball i guess as a kid mm -hmm. to see what the future would be like so definitely. did you uh, did you like school oh, i love school okay um i i wasn't the best student starting off mm -hmm. in fact i i I'd had a few issues. I kind of had a, a speech impediment okay. as well as just a general disinterest early, early on. Mm -hmm. uh, my interests were, were very, were varied. I, I, I really liked to sort of tinker. I really liked things that were kind of mechanical mm -hmm. and, you know, normal school just didn't do that. Um, right. And I think to think a little bit more abstractly. Um, and so it wasn't until about fourth or fifth grade where things got a little more hands-on that I don't know something happened a switch went off and I just ended up being a, a great student okay and I basically just carried that all the way into college I was still just kind of running with that torch I ended up working in um, data science it's kind of what I do now okay. um, I ended up doing data engineering um, so anything where I can kind of code or build or create is something that I I really gravitate toward but I, you, you saw that maybe looking back now you're like that was that was starting to be there maybe as a teenager or yeah probably as a child which or is probably why i didn't really enjoy school early early on yeah. um you know sort of when you're you're coding and things like that there's a lot more problem solving mm -hmm. it's a lot more abstract and i think that those kinds of sort of ideas and thoughts is why i've excelled in that area right versus like when i was a kid and everything's just rote memorization and sitting in straight lines and rows and things like that. Mm -hmm. You go to Catholic school on top of that and you know, it's like, uh oh, it's a recipe for disaster. Did you go to Catholic school? I did, okay. I did. So I ended up going to Catholic schools for the first part um, up until about middle school. Okay. And my mom started to get a little concerned about the, what she would consider sort of an elitism mm -hmm. that was sort of being taught at mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want me to sort of live in this bubble so she deliberately <laughs> put me into Brookfield School, uh, which was way different than the private schools that I'd gone to. Right. Um, there were kids directly from my neighborhood. And, you know, she would say sometimes, you know, you got to get to know the people around you because this could potentially be the person who saves your life mm. or this could be the person that you need to save. And you don't need to walk around too highbrow. Yeah, your mom is awesome. Yeah, she's I pretty, like she's wild. Yeah. So she, she experimented with me. It worked out fine, it seems. That was Dale Johnson. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, Dale will continue the story of his life, including how he discovered a love for the game of polo. Join us for part two this Thursday. Also just want to mention again Michelle's photo show, 214, which takes place this Thursday from 7.30 to 10.30 at 63 Bluxom Street in the city. Check our website or socials for more info. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me. Michelle and I have produced more than 130 episodes over the last three years. And you can find them all at our website, storiedsf.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you can like, comment, and share the stuff we put out. Find the podcast just about everywhere you can listen, including, most recently, BFF.fm's new podcast network. Please subscribe to stay up to date on all the content we publish. 
We love feedback. So if you have any, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and stay healthy. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.